not only did I see again the power of fandom to come out in the real world for a good cause and I thought you know fans they they need help in fixing the world Welcome to Geek Out with Angie Fiedler-Sutton, an ongoing discussion on geeky topics. Hello, fellow geeks. If you only check into this podcast through my website, you may have missed that on May 1st, I dropped a non-episode episode. As I stated there, I'd been wanting to play around with audio for a bit, and so did an audio recording of a short story that Angelique Jurd, friend of the podcast, wrote. So be sure to go check out The Cauliflower Club if that interests you. I first heard about what is known as WhedonCon back in 2016. I had written an article for Sci-Fi For Me about it, changing its name. It, like Gallifrey One, is a Los Angeles-based con that I first heard about once I moved here. Since that initial article, I'd kept my eye on it and had started seeing posts from one of the people who run it and some of my other geeky groups. Marcia Powers is a Los Angeles real estate agent by day, Whedon fan by, well, by all free time? She not only helps manage the con, but she also helps run the fan sites Whedonopolis and Fandomopolis, which you may have noticed I've written for occasionally in the past year. I sat down with Marcia and we talked Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Joss Whedon, being a fan, and Whedon Con. I'm Marcia Powers, and I'm here to talk about the lovely world of fandom and a little bit about WhedonCon. Are you an L.A. native? I couldn't find if you've been here uh, all your life, or did you move here? Actually, I was born here, but due to family, I ended up being raised in New York as starting as a baby. Mm-hmm. I came out here when I was 16. My mom decided that she wanted to get divorced. And because she had lived here back in the 50s, she had had the memories of, of Hollywood in the 50s. Let me tell you, it ain't the Hollywood in the 50s. In the 70s, I came here happy to have been raised in New York, but happy to have had the 70s in Hollywood because, boy, was it fun. And so that's really how it is. Now, you're pretty heavily involved in, in fandom in the Los Angeles area. Your, your, your name pops up on a number of the Facebook groups I belong to uh, that are geek and fandom related. Origin story. Tell me about the first time you either entered a fandom or that you realized that you were a fan of something and, and how that, you know, clobbered you over the head as fandoms are wont to do. <laughs> it is interesting that I have memories of my mother trying to find stuff for me to read that, quote, was a positive female role model. I learned that expression at the age of two and five and then later on because my mom was really into taking me to the library because we were poor living in the Bronx but also comic books so I learned to read on Batman Superman Wonder Woman and Supergirl comics and I to this day have not read uh, Nancy Drew because my mother said that was not a positive female role model because her boyfriend would rescue her but The reason I bring that up is my mom and dad did not think that they were geeks at all, but I was required to stay up past my bedtime to watch Star Trek. Required. And when in year three it became an hour later, my mother said I would be staying up an hour later because I needed to watch it. 
But if we go into real fandom, because I stopped reading comic books at the age of 16 when I came to Los Angeles, I just dropped it. I'd been married already for a, a bit, and I heard about this really great show. And I'm not sure when I started watching it. If it was season two, what episode, or season one, or whatever, and neither can my husband, but Buffy. And we were those people who on Tuesday night told everyone, if the phone rings, we will hunt you down during the commercial. And that was, of course, way before the internet when it first started, uh, at least the internet we know of nowadays. And I, I was on a website, one website with a form, with people all over the world. And people today, the, the, the youngins, don't know how hard we really had it. So that was my first fandom, but it was online. It, it, I didn't tell anybody in the real world what we were doing. And even my husband didn't tell his friends. You know, he just said, we're watching something on Tuesday and don't bother us. But around 2002, I wanted to meet people in real life and meetup.com had started. And I thought, how interesting. So I started what turned out to be Buffy Group 2 of all of meetup.com around the world. But it took six months to actually have anyone actually meet in real life. And for anyone who's ever watched Felicia Day's series, The Guild, that was episode four, season one of The Guild. That's when I knew I loved what Felicia was doing because it was so true to life. We're at Borders Bookstore in Sherman Oaks and it's Buffy Los Angeles group. And I, to this day, I, I, most of our people from LA come to the Valley, but I can't get them to go anywhere in LA because of traffic. But I see this woman, I'm, we're all, I'm looking around, looking around, and I see a woman, she kind of looks like she's looking around, and, and I go, Buffy? And she very loudly, with the gesturing of the arms, goes, oh, thank God. <laughs> and then the other two, then Ray and Allison came over. And it was the first time any of us had met in real life other geeks. They weren't like the SCA folk or like the Star Trek people who, or, or even Star Wars who had been doing this for so long. We were really new at doing this. What I did is I started a meetup group. I wanted to meet people in real life. And that was the big thing about meetup.com back then was to meet in real life. So I went ahead and little by little it expanded. And a lot of events and things that I got into were because of that, because I started to come out of the geek closet. Now, some of my gay and lesbian bisexual friends think that that's a cute expression from so long ago, but it really is. I hid what I was because the majority of people in those days would make fun of you. And especially a show like Buffy, you know, come on the name. And that was the beginning of my doing fandom. The first time I ever went to an event was Grand Slam by Creation. And I wish they still did those, but I understand why they don't anymore. And that was a blast. The first one I went to had a Buffy Day on Sunday. So there was James Marsters, Nick Brendan, and some of the, the tech people from behind the scenes. And I loved it. And I turned to my husband and I said, oh, thank God, we have a fandom that doesn't wear weird costumes and strange makeup, just as somebody walks by with a vampire face. <laughs> and that baby go, well, so maybe we could actually meet people in real life and more and more. And so it just grew from that. Now, um, you are, I think the official title is managing editor of Fandomopolis and, we and uh, Weedonopolis? Yes. 
or assignment editor, depending on how who we're talking with. So the way we started was from Meetup, all the people who were together, Allison and another one of the founders for Phantom Charities, uh, Sean Ray, they were really into Farscape, heavy into Farscape. And so about 2005, I went with Sean down to Comic-Con and with some other people, but we branched off and I had an absolute blast. And I thought based on what these Farscape fans, what they were trying to do for a talent, for Ben Browder, that kind of a site, I thought, you know, we could do something in our world. And we did, we put together Weedonopolis and it was a blast. We went down about 10 to 15 of us, depending on how the year was. And we would go down and we would interview people. We would do write-ups. We were one of the first sites to video record our interviews. We did it because I knew that if I waited for people to transcribe what they recorded to an actual readable article, it wouldn't happen or it would happen like two weeks later. And so we would be able to get it up right away. We didn't even do any cuts. It was the full interview video with it standing on a table. And we just had a blast. As the years have gone on, I've realized I do better behind the scenes than I do in front of the scenes, which in some ways has not been good. So some people over the years have taken credit for things that I did because I didn't tell people about it. I've changed that. Now I tell people. But I still push everyone else forward. So we've expanded out. And I find I'm really great at networking with suits, getting the invitations, talking to the the talent, but I pass on the actual interviews to someone else. And so it just depends on who I'm talking with. Managing editor sounds good to someone who doesn't know me any better. (laughs) Assignment editor is really what I am. And herder of kittens is what I was named back in 07. And that's on my business cards. Now, this is all um, voluntary, correct? We are 100% volunteer. If my mother was still alive, I'd still hear her talking about how, you know, everyone else gets paid to do this, why not you? Well, we did it for fun. We did it to give back to the fandom itself. And we aren't that tech savvy. So we have a basic WordPress site. And if anyone ever out there would like to donate their time to help us to figure out how to do tech, we would be very happy. But we're 100% volunteer. It's just we do better that way. And in full disclosure, uh, for those of you who don't know, I have contributed to the Fandomopolis side uh, about four or five times now. And for people to know what the differences are, Weedonopolis.com, like I said, started life around 2006, 2007. And the idea was it was all weed and all the time, except we used to joke around about how some things were six degrees of Joss Whedon because we would get offered interviews that were amazing, but they weren't Whedon. So that became a running joke, including the time that we were supposed to interview Kevin Bacon <laughs> at down at San Diego, I think in 07, no, in 08. And he had a film that they were going to have a panel on. Well, that all got canceled, but his publicists were very disappointed because they were actually, they had told him that because we do six degrees of Joss Whedon, he actually fit in the sixth degree. And he thought it was funny. Phantomopolis, on the other hand, we started doing that approximately two, maybe three years ago because there is so much more out there. And Phantomopolis really does mean the world of fandom. Like Whedonopolis is the world of Whedon, like Metropolis. 
you know, the world of Superman. So if people are interested in everything, then really Phantomopolis is the place for them to go. If they're interested in anyone who's ever worked for Joss Whedon or anyone who worked for anyone who worked for Joss, then Whedonopolis is for you. But I really think for most people, it's now Phantomopolis. Now, uh, I'm sure this is kind of like pick your favorite child kind of question, but do you have a favorite Whedon show? It's always Buffy. And what specifically about that show drew you? On one hand, I cannot say what one thing. I will say the writing was amazing. We talked about it on the forum. When Drew Goddard came on board, I believe in season six, maybe seven, we Mm -hmm. came up with a nickname, Drew Goddard is a God, because of the way he wrote. We got to the point where you could tell who wrote which episodes or what part of the episodes. The Joss verse or the Whedon verse taught me to look at the background and see how the set designer set things up, to look for mistakes in continuity or just that scene. If I had been interested in producing what we now would call a series or a web series or something back in those days, doing some kind of production, that was a fantastic training ground. And because I had been raised looking for positive female role models, I liked Buffy. I liked, as time went on, Willow's story, because either we are a Willow or we had a friend who was a Willow. And then, personally, when the Willow and Tara romance started, as a straight woman, I watched it and I said, please don't fuck this up because I saw the direction it was going in and I was just so pleased and, and how the writing slowly moved into it so it wasn't an episode of, the, the, the series was never an episode of the week. And I loved it. I loved the quality of the writing and everything. And I personally think I'm Buffy. Mind you, when I saw, jo- now we don't have to worry about spoilers all these years, when they showed Joyce's headstone and I saw how old Joyce was, I screamed at the TV and I went, <laughs> wait a minute, I'm Joyce? No, no, I'm, bu- I'm Joyce. <laughs> so I think that's also a big thing is that with the series, you can be any of the characters and it doesn't mean that it's the same age or you're the mom or whatever, but there are personalities in it that were written so strong that I actually started reading the comics mm-hmm. and I haven't read all of season 12 yet because when I do, that's the end and, and I, I don't want it to ever end. Now, do you feel that the show has has held up? Because it's been quite a while since it's been on. 10, 20 years now? Not only do I think it's held on, but it's getting new viewers without having to be rebooted. About two years ago, there was a, I believe two years ago, there was a party held downtown during San Diego Comic-Con. And Weedonopolis was involved. And it was in a nightclub maybe five blocks away from San Diego Convention Center. And they weren't sure how many people would show up. And I said, oh, it's going to fill over overflow. And it did. They counted over 300 people, of which two-thirds were under the age of 30. We had Andrew Furchland, who played the, well, depending on who you ask, it's officially the anointed one in season one. But the nickname was the annoying one. And he's a lovely man, and he got gets a kick out of fandom. And it was the first time he'd ever been in a room where people started doing a sing-along to the music, to Once More With Feeling. And he had a shit-eating grin on his face. 
because he looked around and as we did and he saw 20 year olds knowing all the words that they came in costumes someone got dressed up full blown as one of the puppets from that episode and their friend was dressed up as the demon sweet and this is in the middle of the the hot temperature down in San Diego and there's always a new generation coming in. You've got the parents who show it to their kids, except for season six. And then you've got the ones who just find it because of their friends or the ones who find that there's a talent that they're interested in. And they look back and they go, oh, look, they were in this cute thing. As long as they don't see the movie, they're okay. And they'll, they come into the fandom and the fandom doesn't die. I think that the Buffy fandom and a little bit Buffy slash Angel, which it was more adult, will exist like the Star Trek fandom does. Like, well, I hope Star Wars continues to, since I hear they're not, they're talking about not necessarily doing more films. But it continues on because people have fun with it. People make their own things. There's amazing fanfic out there, old and new. And there are people who still put on little events to get their friends together and that's all over the world. I, I'm sorry, you're not going to find that on the television shows that are on nowadays. As you know, nobody's going to do that for the rookies. And I doubt anyone's going to do that for Arrow. And those kind of shows, even though they're good for now, I don't see the lasting potential. Let's kind of segue into WhedonCon. Um, did you help start it or did you join it after it had started? What happened is back in 2004, uh, there was a, a political fundraiser called High Stakes 2004 by Alison Abramowitz, who's um, involved with the Democratic Party statewide. And she had talked to Joss and he had agreed to do a phone interview with her. Fans were going to write in there to her their questions and she was going to do a phone interview. And there were house parties all across the country and you paid a certain amount that went towards the carry campaign and you got to listen in well she asked me if i do the la one and at, my husband has never said no since but he said no because at the time he was a republican and so i went looking for a venue couldn't find a venue because i mean tech was so old i had to find a, a restaurant with a separate room with a phone plug-in and an old-fashioned speaker phone to attach the phone to because we didn't have cell phones in those days you know and such and so Joss heard about it and he went back and said to the Democratic Party, if you can find a place in greater Los Angeles holding at least 400 people, instead of doing this in my bathrobe in the bathroom, I will come, I will bring my friends. And then to us, the rules became that we had one week's notice to put this together. We were not to tell anybody that Joss was gonna be there. As far as they knew, it was just an LA location. The rule to us was, it was not going to be the fans on one side and the talent on the other side, as they normally are in an event. It was going to be a party and everyone was going to socialize. So that's when I actually had just started with my friends in the real world and the Farscape friends and such. And so I went up to a bunch of them and I said, I trust you. Would you be my security, my low-key security? They said yes. And I saw the reaction to the talent, the reaction to getting fans together for a good cause. And I thought, 
I could do something with this. This this is amazing. Hi, my name is Hansi Oppenheimer, and I'm the producer of The Squee Project, and I'm geeking out with Angie Fiedler-Sutton today, and you should too. You can find this podcast, as well as myself, on various social media at Angie F. Sutton. I also have a Patreon at that handle. For as little as $1 a podcast, you can support Geek Out, get the audio files a bit sooner than the rest of the world, and receive both transcripts and behind-the-scenes stories from all of my episodes. Don't forget to give me a review over on iTunes or Stitcher. The more reviews this podcast gets, the easier other people are able to find it. You can also sign up for my monthly newsletter and see all of the places you can now listen to this podcast at my website, angiefsutton.com. And now, back to my interview with Marcia Powers. Now, after that, we did our um, Once More with Feelings screening in 2000, April of 2007. And we raised over $5,000 for the Elizabeth Glazer Pediatric AIDS Foundation. And that was amazing. We didn't know what we were doing. We put on a screening. It was just a bunch of fun. David Fury, James Leary, Camden Toy, Ben Edland, and Brian Fuller, who asked through a friend of a friend if he could come. But they came in the hung out with the fans, which was amazing. And not only did I see, again, the power of fandom to come out in the real world for a good cause, because we showed once more with feeling, and we had interactive goodie bags. It was so much fun. And smile time. And so David Fury, for the first time, got to hear a reaction to something he had written. And I thought, you know, fans, they they need help in fixing the world. So between that and finding out from the IRS that they don't like fans just putting on an event and raising money for charity because someone's IRS number is going to have to pay the taxes, we did some research and we took us six months, but we became Fandom Charities, Inc., a 501c3 established for raising funds for other charities by having fun fan events and educational events. And we moved on from there. So we started doing Dr. Horrible because we couldn't do the Once More Feeling anymore. Fox had an issue with everybody doing it for real. And so in 2008, we did the first Dr. Horrible Halloween event. Approved by Joss, it raised money for Path Ventures. They build affordable housing for low-income families. And I told most of my team that he was coming and that we were going to have a few other talent. And Felicia Day came earlier in the day dressed as a luchador, so nobody knew she was hanging out and talking to people. But at the end of the event, Kelly and I were standing on the stage, and we said, we have some people here who would like to thank you. Now, this was on Halloween. This was a Friday night on Halloween. People had actually taken their kids out trick-or-treating and then came and hung out with us. And I and I, we sat them after everyone had been seated for the second showing, which was the Dr. Horrible, because the beginning was the guild. And there were screams, there was applause, and Joss, Jed, Marissa, Zach... Nathan, um, pretty much everybody who, except for uh, Neil Patrick Harris, who had been involved top level, came on the stage and thanked everyone. And we had a whole bunch of second and third level talent that had hung out earlier in the evening with the fans. And it was, again, it was the reaction of the talent to the fans who were there to raise money for a very good cause, who did not expect to see talent. 
they were there to hang out with each other. And for the fans to see that the talent had actually left their families at home on Halloween to come and hang with them. And that was really special. It wasn't just an event. And that went on for a few years through to 2016. But it got to the point where in Halloween, all of a sudden, it was hard to find a venue. We went from a geek event that you could come by yourself and you could come regular or you could come dressed up and you'd have a blast and it was affordable. It's like $20, $25 a person to get in and more and more talent would show up. Different talent would hang out. But getting a venue was like pulling teeth. And even the last year we did it, originally we were supposed to be at the Egyptian theater. And then once Joss said yes, he would come, they messed up. And so 2016 was our last year. We did it at the Raleigh Studios. But we wanted, I had always wanted to do a con, a convention. Ever since when the Brown Coats put on what's called the Brown Coat Backup Bash or B3, I was involved with SoCal Brown Coats at the time. And the booster events went bankrupt the day of the event with people flying in from Australia and from England and everything. And I again watched not only the power of fandom come together, the people around the world were donating money so that we could afford to pay for the Pickwick Theater and, and all the things we did. And because it was still, there were people there expecting a three-day event. And seeing again the talent show up. Mark Shepard showed up on Friday and hung out playing pool with the fans because why not? And I've, I even though I don't believe in, in the way that he acts in the real world, Adam Baldwin came and he spent Thursday night with the fans, just hanging out, having beer and keep pretty much keeping people calm while they're freaking out about how there's no event. And the SoCal Browncoats, we're trying to figure out how to make a con happen with no money. And I just, and, and at the end I said, I want to do this again. And everyone said, please let us sleep. And every year, Phantom Charities Board would say, no, we're not ready. No, we're not ready. No, we're not ready. And I say all this to give you an idea of where my head's at. So in 2015, I said, you know, I think it's time we put on a con. And Ray said, maybe it is time. And the rest of the board went, ah, shit. <laughs> and that was the beginning. It took us two years to get our first year up and running. For, and, and we didn't even have a name that I liked. But starting with year two, 2017, we officially called it WhedonCon. Um, nice and short. Uh, no, Joss has not come to the convention. Bless his heart. He knows about us. He has not said, stop it. And that's a good sign. But we're doing it for the fans. It's a fun event. It's kind of fanish and kind of media mixed together. In a way, it's what San Diego was back in the beginning of time but it's also more social. And each year, Phantom Charities has always picked a different charity to raise money for. This year, we're raising funds for equality now because, well, politically, I'm going to say, you can't rely on America to take care of everyone like we used to, which we should still be doing. So Equality Now is a fantastic organization that around the world and is even doing some stuff in America uh, to help women and girls who some of them who are being put into child marriages, um, all, all kinds of things that go on. And it's also, we are continuing in the memory of Ron Glass, who, depending on your age, you either remember him from Firefly or you remember him from Barney Miller. 
he was extremely involved with the Al Wooten Center, which is now called the Al Wooten Youth Center down in South Los Angeles. They're amazing. When I grew up in New York City, my mom actually had me at an organization like that to keep kids off the street after school. They happen to do it from third grade to 12th grade, keep them busy, help them with their homework, and guide them on track to go to college. And by the time I had known of their organization, Juan had passed away. The stories I heard at his, at his wake were amazing. He really physically, not just with money, he physically gave back to the community. And so we are continuing to help them and raise money towards their organization also. Fandom Charities is an amazing organization. We do a lot of things, but we realize we cannot just be the Halloween event anymore, though we'd love to start doing it again. And really this was something that brings people from around the world to do the same things that we did with our Halloween event. Two thirds of our people come from outside of Los Angeles every year. It blows my mind. And it makes me feel very guilty and very scared about how we always have to put on a better event than the year before, because these people are putting their trust in us to put on a really good fun event and to get to hang out with the talent of the Weedenverse. Now um, that leads into if you can as briefly as you can, talk a little <laughs> bit about this year specifically. Give me kind of the Reader's Digest of when it's happening, who's involved. This year, we are having an amazing compilation of talent. It is the 20th anniversary of Angel. And so we went out and we went to see who could we bring in. Local, because that's an, a great thing about L.A. is that most of the talent is here. They're not all. We're flying in a lot of talent. But our main people, we were able to do it. This year, we have James Marsters, Juliet Landau, Julie Benz, and Summer Glau is actually coming in for our brown coat group. But she was on Angel. <laughs> and in fact, and it's also the 10th anniversary of Dollhouse. Now, for Dollhouse, we have... Uh, Miracle Laurie, who's coming again. She's been fantastic with the fans. Oh, yeah, no, I've interviewed her before. She's awesome. Yes. Now, also this year, we have David Fury, who's <laughs> coming. Sam Anderson, who was um, Holland Banners. You, there's just so many. If you're a Farscape person, Gigi Edgley is going to be with us. And that's a big deal. And on Saturday night, Ghost of the Robot with James Marsters is going to be playing. And again, last time they played in California was a year ago and so there's plenty more folks there that you would probably look at and go oh my god because you get to actually meet them so tell me the dates as well as kind of general pricing i know it varies depending on on what all you're going to participate but kind of just a general okay so it's going to be friday through sunday june 7th through the 9th and when you talk about pricing we have been told that for what we give, we're amazing price. And through the middle of May, weekend badge is only $99. And that's everything starting at approximately 9 in the morning on Saturday through the evenings on Friday. It's our short day. 
And so we start at approximately 3 p.m., but we go on through almost midnight. And that's the thing is that it, there's a lot included. If you've got teenagers, teenagers are only $25 to come. And if you've got kids 10 or under, it's free because we're trying to encourage more geek families to be able to afford to come to an event like this. And we got a huge discount on the parking because you know that can be an issue. It's going to be at the Hilton LAX. There will be plenty of parking, though, because we've arranged that. It's a hotel-based event. So we also have discounts for staying at the hotel to make it a fun social. It's, it's a location event. It's like, I know I throw it out a lot, but it's like going to San Diego Comic-Con where you don't necessarily go for a day. But if you want to go for a day, our Friday is, is only $40, our Saturday is only 60 and our Sunday is only 40 but there's a lot of stuff going on that's included and a lot of social things in addition to panels. We have three tracks so that there's always something for you to do if you're interested. Uh, we also have add-ons, what we call fan experiences. Uh, we've just sold out on our breakfast with villains, which had you in the morning sitting and having a nice breakfast along with Juliet Landau, James Marsters, Julie Benz, Tim Desarn, who was the harbinger in the film um, The Cabin in the Woods. And, and I'll leave it with this because I can talk way too much. The idea of WhedonCon is affordable, a lot of stuff to do, and the profits go to charity. And that's what we're working for. And, and we're always looking for volunteers in addition to people to come regular. And... Uh, I'm, I'm afraid of going too oh, long because right. I love we're, it too much. I was going to say, we're starting to get to the to the end. So where can people find you slash WhedonCon? So WhedonCon.com. If you have questions about anything, you can always go to info at WhedonCon.com. If you want to follow us on Facebook, it's WhedonCon. If you want to follow us on Instagram, it's WhedonCon. Even on Twitter, it's WhedonCon. Because Facebook has its evil algorithm, we do ask that you not only like the page, but you also mark on the event page that whether you're interested or going, but that will help you in knowing what's happening. And if you do go to our website and you sign up for the newsletter, you know approximately a day or so before anyone else about anything else that's being added to the event or even any outreach events that are going on. Um, and then anything else before I ask my final question that you wanted to talk about? I will say support your local meetup groups. Meeting people in real life in between conventions is really important. And so if you're a brown coat, if you're into Angel, if you're into Farscape, if you're into anything sci-fi fantasy, come and check out our groups. But even wherever you might be, there's a meetup somewhere out there. And if there isn't, start one. That's what I did, and it's a fantastic way to make friends in the real world. As you know, the name of my podcast is Geek Out with Angie Fiedler Sutton. I try and ask everybody I interview, what are you currently geeking out about and why? So is there something recently that you've been reading, watching, listening to, that you've just been super excited about and that you're telling everyone about? Actually, what I geeked out about, and I started telling people they had to, had to, had to see it, just got non-renewed. Netflix is making me unhappy. The Santa Clarita Diet. Oh my goodness. The year one, I was at uh, Emerald City Comic Con. 
and my husband and I had an Airbnb. And as we're getting ready to leave, to go, especially since I was supposed to be on a panel, he turns on Netflix because it's the only thing that the TV in the Airbnb will go to. And he turns that on because he can't believe that it, who it is that, that's the leads. And we were almost late to go to my own panel because we couldn't leave. And that was season one. They just finished season three. It closes out, but it leaves a little something for the next year, which is how they always set it up. And I hate Netflix. At this point, it's like after three seasons, they're just going to kill everything off. But everybody needs to see it. In real life, I'm a real estate agent. I'm the real estate slayer. And what was funny is that's what got my husband to also turn it on. Besides who it was, Santa Clarita, they're real estate agents. Let's check it out because that's part of Los Angeles. It's the funniest thing I've ever seen. The writing is super excellent. You don't know where it's going to go. Within the episode, you don't know where it's going to end up, let alone within the season. Amazing, amazing writing. And the editing is sharp, because sometimes I'll watch something and I think I could have edited this better. Everything was perfection. I'm telling everybody, even though it you're not going to go, damn, why should I start something if I can't see more of it? It's three seasons that close out nicely in its own little world. And I just, I love it. And the only other thing that's coming up right now is I'm starting to tell people, because I heard that Deadwood, the movie, mm. is coming out. So I got into that because of Allison and a handful of other people. And that one I'm so looking forward to. It was heartbreaking when the fourth season didn't happen and there were all those cliffhangers. Mm -hmm. But again, quality writing, quality acting. And, and they both start Timothy Elephant. Oh, mama. <laughs> oh, let me tell you, the first time I heard him talk without that accent, I went, who the heck? Oh, what? But it's okay. I still drool. And now it's time for Angie Geeks Out. I've been playing video games for as long as I remember. Whether it's playing the Atari that a friend of my father's had when I was around five, to when my mom bought our family an Intellivision, to my own purchase of a backwards compatible PlayStation 3, I've always loved gaming. For the most part, I tend to stick to two types of games, side-scrollers like the Mario franchise and role-playing style games. And I've always been fascinated by text-based games ever since I was first eaten by a grew. So when I first heard about the browser-based text game Fall in London, I was intrigued. Like many things for me lately, I heard about it on Tumblr. The initial premise sounded fun. It's an alternative Victorian London with Gothic and Lovecraftian overtones. However, it was the gender options that were highlighted in that Tumblr post and what made me give it a shot. When you start, it asks, may we ask whether you're a lady or gentleman? Your options are, as assumed, a lady or a gentleman, but there's also a third option. I quote, my dear sir, there are individuals roaming the streets of fallen London at this very moment with the faces of squid. Squid! Do you ask them their gender? And yet you waste our time asking me trifling and impertinent questions about mine? It is my own business, sir, and I bid you good day. How could you not like that? The game gives you 20 turns at a time, gaining new turns every six minutes or so. You start out as a new arrival in the underground, and you build a plot based on certain choices and turns. There doesn't seem to be a way to win the game, per se, any more than there's a way to win at games such as The Sims. While the game for me isn't addictive like Niko Atsumi was, 
It is a good distraction and a short escape, especially with what's going on in the world today. If you like text-based adventure games, I recommend you give it a try. It's free to play, and like all free to play games, you can pay for extras. And as mentioned, it's accessible on any browser. There's no flash and minimal graphics, but definitely reading involved. Check it out at fallenlondon.com. And that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks to Marcia Powers for taking the time to talk with me. Thanks also to fangirl Hansi Oppenheimer for the mid-show plug. If you missed it, I interviewed her back in episode 37 about her documentary project, Squee! A heads up that if everything works out well, I may be moving to a twice-a-month release schedule. I'm going to try and release the next episode on June 1st, and it will be my audio from this year's Writers and Illustrators of the Year Awards back in April. Until next time, stay geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek Out with Angie Fiedler Sutton. The theme song is Schoolyard Haze by Yari Picknickin, available via the Free Music Archive. This podcast is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike License. More information about the podcast is available on AngieFSutton.com.